to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts, chapter 13. Acts 13, if you're using uh, the, the blue ESV Bible in the seatbacks out there, you can find our text on page 921. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 52. So Acts 13, all the way through the end of the chapter. The title of our sermon this morning is The Message of Salvation, and the key words for our worshipers in training are God, Jesus, and Joy. Over the past several months now, the Lord has been teaching us through Luke's chronicling of the advance of the Christian gospel in the days following the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he's been teaching us that God's kingdom is spreading. The kingdom of man, that is all the forces arrayed against the Lord and His anointed, stands as nothing in comparison to the kingdom of God. From Acts 1.8 on, we have seen the message of the cross and the empty tomb advance even in the midst of suffering and persecution. In fact, we've seen it advance often because of suffering and persecution, that the Lord that was the very thing that the Lord used to advance His kingdom was persecution. We've seen that the Lord has been winning Jews, Samaritans, and as we've seen particularly in the last few weeks, Gentiles to His name. He is building His church in these early chapters in Acts. Last week we saw Barnabas and Saul commissioned as missionaries by the church in Antioch. They went down to Cyprus and preached to the Jews in the synagogues. And eventually they, they covered the whole island of Cyprus and they, they spoke with a, a man named Sergius Paulus, a proconsul there in Paphos. And he came to faith despite the opposition of the kingdom of man through Bar-Jesus, Bar the false prophet and magician. Now last week, we didn't really get to hear anything in particular regarding the message that Paul was preaching. Luke sped through it very quickly. Today, however, we're going to slow down. Luke is going to let us in on one of the Apostle Paul's masterful sermons while he was in Pisidian Antioch. And we get here today a very clear articulation of the message of salvation from the lips of the Apostle Paul. And so I hope above all else that we can walk out of here today with a fresh sense of what is the gospel? How do you answer that question? I hope we can answer that today um, with a, a fresh and clear embrace of that message. So I don't want us to just be able to articulate it, but I want us to be loving it all the more. So let's read these verses. And it's uh, not as lengthy as some other passages that we've seen before, but it's a little bit longer. Um, I'm going to read the whole passage here, uh, and then I will outline it, and then we will get to work. Let's read beginning in verse 13. Now, Paul... Uh, Quick disclaimer, last week, remember, he was called Saul up to this point, but now that he's increasingly going to be going to the Gentiles, he's being referenced as Paul. And we see him sort of front-loaded in, in the midst. It was Barnabas and Paul. Now it's just Paul and companions. 
they set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the, ruler, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people, all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among, who, among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, though this, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, 
For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if someone tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So there are, there are three uh, sections to this sermon, three parts, three things I want you to see with me this morning. First, in verses 13 through 25, we will see the message of salvation requested and introduced. Second, in verses 26 through 41, we will see the message delivered. Third, in verses 42 through 52, we will see the message both received and rejected. So the message requested and introduced, the message delivered, the message received and rejected. Look with me then in the first place at verses 13 through verse 25 where we see the message requested and introduced. Luke tells us here in these verses that Paul and his companions set sail from where we had seen them last week in Paphos on the island of Cyprus. And they came to Perga in Pamphylia with John. Uh, he just says here leaving them, but Paul uh, sees it as a desertion that we'll come back to this in Acts 15, so we won't say much about it here. But John Mark leaves them at this point, and we're told nothing further about their endeavors in Perga, but only that they had continued on to Antioch in Pisidia. A Roman colony about 100 miles north. So this is a different Antioch than the one that they were sent out from. Um, this Antioch, is, though it's located in Pisidia, it was actually the governing center of the, the southern half of the vast province of Galatia. Um, and so some of the people converted here in this passage are likely those who would receive the letter that Paul was to write to the Galatians later on. And so they, they, they're here in Antioch, and they, they enter the synagogue on the Sabbath day, Luke tells us. And the law and the prophets are read, and the rulers of the synagogue ask Paul and company if they had any word of encouragement that they might share with the people. Um, why they asked Paul this, it's, it's not immediately clear. Likely he was known uh, as a rabbi 
Perhaps his, his clothing, what he was wearing, would have given him away. But whatever the case, they asked him for a word of encouragement. And Paul, ever eager to share the good news of Christ with any who would listen, he stands up and begins to speak. And in verses 16 through 25, Luke captures Paul's introduction to the gospel message. And there are a few uh, points worth observing here as we consider how he introduces this word of encouragement. He begins by summarizing Israel's history, starting with the Exodus. He tells them, God chose and led our fathers out of the land of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And He put up with them for another 40 years during the wilderness wanderings after their refusal to enter the land initially that He was giving them. Paul then summarizes the next major period of Israelite history. Um, he says he dis- God destroyed those nations in Canaan. Seven, he says. And he, he gave them the land as the inheritance that he had promised. And so from Egypt to Canaan took about 450 years. From there, he tells them God gave Israel judges, deliverers, who would rescue Israel out of the hands of their enemies when they had been given over to their enemies because of their rejection of God and His promises. And this, we're told, lasted until the prophet Samuel, who was the last judge of Israel. Now through Samuel, God gave Israel a king. It was, of course, at Israel's uh, insistence that this take place. Um, And while he doesn't comment on it here, if you know the story, Saul was not a particularly good king. All in all, quite bad. And so God removes him from the kingdom and he sets up David, the son of Jesse, in his place. A man, he describes, who a man after his own heart, he says, would do his will. And then he skips over about a thousand years of redemptive history and gets right to his point for this piece of introduction. He says, David's offspring, Jesus, is the promised Savior. And then he comments that right before Jesus' arrival, Israel had been prepared by John the Baptist, whom many thought he was the Messiah. But he denies it, saying that he's not even worthy to untie the sandals of he who was coming. And so that's Luke's account of Paul's introductory words to this message of salvation. So what's the, what's the point? Why does Paul spend this time to, to rehearse this Israelite history? What is the point for them to take away? Or what might, what might we take away from these verses? Well, here's just one thing in particular that I think must stand out to us here. Christianity is a historical religion. What I mean is that we stand on the shoulders of the ones who came before us. And we spend a great deal of time looking back at the things that have happened before now. Our our present culture in 2023 America uh, has an intense fascination with all things present tense. The newer, the better. Right? If you post something online within days or hours, 
maybe even minutes, everyone has already forgotten about it, and we've moved on to the next thing. Our current generation doesn't have the stomach for old things. But Paul's words here are important for helping us to understand that history matters. Our history matters. Paul dips back in this word of encouragement about 1,500 years to remind them of stuff they already knew. The Law and the Prophets are read every Sabbath. The, the, the Jewish protocol at the time, far more rigorous than I think what most Christians in our day would understand. They, they would have known their Old Testaments well. They would have known their, the story of redemptive history well. The Exodus was something that they rehearsed constantly. And so why does Paul do this? Why does Paul begin here? Well, it's not simply to teach them a history lesson. Yes, we have a historical faith, but I want to take it a little bit further than that because the historical nature of Christianity and one particular thing about it informs greatly the present nature of Christianity. The thing that governs it all is the faithfulness of God. If you read through those opening verses here of this passage, beginning in verse 16, what is it that you continue to hear over and over again? Well, it's, it's the work and the act of God. God chose His people. God rescued them out of slavery. God put up with the rebellious generation. God overthrew seven wicked nations. God gave Israel the promised land. God gave them a king. And then He gave them a better one. And then He gave them the best one. So what's the takeaway? It's far more than the bare fact that Christianity cares about the past. It's that God has acted over and over and over again in the past on behalf of His people. And so here in this opening section, in this introduction to Paul's message, that's what we need to see. Are we able to read especially biblical history this way, but even church history this way. What has brought us the 2,000 years since this time of Paul's sermon? God is still acting. It's not in the same exact way. It's not recorded for us in inspired Scripture, but God still acts and works. And so are we able to read the past and see God's faithfulness? I pray that we would increasingly learn to view history the way that Paul does here. Right? All of it is about God's faithfulness and it's pointing to this man, Jesus Christ, who he says in verse 23 was the promised one. So that's the first point, this requested message and its introduction. Look with me in the second place then in verses 26 through 41 where we see the message delivered. And here I'm thinking the, the, the gist, the, the main crux of the message, right? Here he gets to the main point. He set up and introduced the message by introducing God's faithfulness to his promises. Now he's going to get to the heart of the message. And he does so um, by quoting several Old Testament texts that demonstrate, as one author puts it, they demonstrate Jesus' advent was no chance event. No fortuitous birth. It was the culmination of history brought to maturity by the sovereign will of the living 
God. So he begins this section in verse 26, and he reminds them that to them, his brothers, the sons of Abraham, those who fear God, he reminds them that God had sent to them the message of salvation that is to be found in this Savior, Jesus. Sadly, for those in Jerusalem, the people and certainly their rulers, Paul says they condemned this Savior, Jesus, rather than receiving Him. And he adds this, because they did not understand the prophets, despite the fact that they're read every Sabbath, they fulfilled the utterances of the prophets by their condemnation of the Christ. And despite finding no fault in him, they handed him over to Pilate for execution. And then, having fulfilled, Paul says, all that was written of him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. And so in, in some ways, he's, he's doubling back here to the importance of the past as he's, he's, he's sort of riffing on this theme of the, the, the prophecies of, of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus and, and the, the ignorance of the, of the Jewish leaders at the time. He says, understanding the Scriptures is necessary because those in Jerusalem who didn't understand them, they unwittingly fulfilled them to their own destruction. They unknowingly carried out all that had been written about Jesus by rejecting and murdering Him. And so Paul wants his audience and the Spirit wants us to, to be asking ourselves this question. Do I know the Scriptures? Or another question. Into what error am I falling because of a lack of understanding? What error am I prone to fall into because I do not understand the Scriptures? What sins am I committing because of an ignorance of what God has done and what God has said? Right? The, the psalmist in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word away in my heart that I might not sin against you, O Lord. Being ignorant of the Scriptures, they knew them. They had them memorized, though. So isn't that put us at odds with Psalm 119? Well, they, they knew them uh, at a, an intellectual way, but they had not worked down into the very fabric of their beings. And so they were led into great sin by their ignorance. And they laid Jesus, having murdered Him, in the tomb. And so Paul has brought us to the tomb, to Jesus inside the tomb, to the darkest moment in history. But as the apostles are so prone to do, here in the book of Acts especially, Paul does not linger for long in the tomb with Jesus inside of it. Immediately, he says in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. Now it's interesting what Paul does here. He distinguishes himself on the one hand from the original apostles. Jesus appeared to them, 
But then in verse 32, he says, And we bring you the good news of what God has promised to the fathers. And so he distinguishes himself from the original 12, and then he includes himself as a fellow messenger of the resurrection. You remember, Paul wasn't with them originally, but in Acts 9, he was confronted and converted by the resurrected Christ himself, who then called him into the apostolic ministry. And so Paul says, we're here to bring you this good news, and here it is. God has promised something to the fathers, and He fulfilled it to their children by raising Jesus from the dead. And then in a series of quotations, like hammer blast on a stubborn nail, he proves definitively that Jesus is the Messianic King and that His audience owes their allegiance to Him. He says, we bring you the good news that what God promised, He's now fulfilled by raising Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16. And the effect of these quotes is something like this. He says, friends, brothers, this was the plan all along. God had always intended to raise Jesus from the dead to make Him a blessing to all nations. As we've pointed out a few times in previous sermons as we've worked through the book of Acts in anticipation of this text in Acts 13, Paul directly connects the sonship of Psalm 2 with the reality of the resurrection. The begetting of the Son in Psalm 2 is fulfilled, in other words, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It then quotes Isaiah 55.3 in Psalm 16.10 to doubly emphasize the Old Testament expectation that the Messiah, God's faithful anointed one, would not see corruption, but instead he would receive the holy and sure blessings of David. That if you read especially all of Isaiah 55, these blessings are for people far off, not just Israel. For the peoples far off to seek the Lord while he may be found. So he quotes the Old Testament several times here to make this point. And then he summarizes it all in verses 36 through 39. He says, look, it wasn't ultimately to David that God made these promises. David served the purpose of God in his own generation. And then he died and was dead and stayed dead. He was laid to rest and he saw corruption. He decayed. He rotted in the tomb like the rest of humanity has and will do. But the one that God raised up, Jesus, he did not see corruption. And here we get to the point. Because Jesus died and was raised from the dead, because he was brought forth from the tomb as a son, the forgiveness of sins through him is now proclaimed. And anyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes or trust is freed or justified from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. We know that Jesus is the Son of God because God raised him from the dead just as he promised to do. And because Jesus was raised from the dead as a son and a king, 
pardon and forgiveness of sins is offered to anyone who trusts in Him. Unlike under the law of Moses, which was powerless to save, the law of Moses condemned. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ justifies or sets free. And yet, a word of warning still lingers for those who will not believe. Paul says, there's freedom, there's justification, there's hope, there's heaven to be offered to those who believe, but beware lest those, or it says, beware lest what is written in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes from Habakkuk 1, verse 5, regarding the judgment and wrath of God against scoffers, particularly in the Babylonian invasion. He says, be careful. Don't let an unbelieving heart lead you to perish. Those who scoff will simply be confounded and astounded. Ultimately, they will perish. Gordon Ketty writes this, he says, The necessity of personal, experiential faith in Jesus as Savior is emphasized by Paul's warning. He quotes from Habakkuk 1.5, which had warned the Jews of a coming invasion by the Chaldeans that would demonstrate God's sovereignty in history and His judgment of Israel's sins. Ketty goes on, The principle applies to all who reject God. Repent or perish is written over the portals of every life that is ever lived. And so, the question for, for us is this. How about you? How about me? Do you believe? Or do you berate and scoff? Well, there's more to say about that, but I want to press on to our, our third point here as we consider Paul's audience and how they responded to this message. Look with me in verses 42 through 52 where we see the message of salvation is embraced by some and rejected by others. After the service on this Sabbath day, the people asked Paul if he might tell them these things again next week. If you ever want to encourage your pastor or a preacher, just go to him after the service and say, brother, would you tell us these things again next week? And so they asked Paul for help, but many of them couldn't wait another week. They followed Paul and Barnabas around and they, they, uh, they were encouraged by these men to continue in the grace of God. And by the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city had gathered to hear the Word of God. But the Jews, and likely Luke is referring to the Jewish leaders here, um, they were filled with jealousy, just like we saw the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem filled with jealousy back in uh, Acts 3, 4, and 5, somewhere in there. They're filled with jealousy, and so they begin to contradict Paul. They begin to revile what he is speaking to them. And Paul's response is kind of wild. He says, it was necessary for God's word to be spoken to them first, but since they've thrust it aside, they've judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Therefore, they would be turning to the Gentiles. And then he quotes from Isaiah 49, 6. 
which, if you know anything about Isaiah 49.6, it is a text clearly about the Messiah. Luke even uh, affirms this in his gospel uh, in the early chapters with uh, a, a reference to it by Simeon about Jesus. So 49.6 of Isaiah is about the Messiah, but Paul applies it to himself and to Barnabas as missionaries. He clearly sees his calling by Jesus to be an apostle in particular as an extension of Jesus' own mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to be a light to the Gentiles. And so he, he responds and saying, that's fine, you don't want this word? We'll go elsewhere. And the result, joy. The Gentiles who heard this began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And then we find this amazing statement. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You know, as we've seen throughout this book, the Bible isn't always interested in fully explaining how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together, but we get a glimpse of it here. Here, Luke summarizes the relationship this way, it was those whom God had appointed to eternal life that wound up believing. And so we see this... That God is active and working in the midst of the advance of His kingdom. That God Himself is calling people to eternal life. And then in verse 49, we get another one of those statements from Luke that he's just so prone to stick into this account. God's Word continued to spread throughout the whole region. Right? Again, we see the kingdom of man at war with the kingdom of God. And again and again, the kingdom of man fails. The Jewish leaders had turned, the, they had turned to the city's important men and women, and they had turned them against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the district. And, and yet Paul and Barnabas responded as Jesus had commanded his apostles to do, that if you are rejected ultimately, then you are to shake the dust of your feet off against them and go somewhere else. And so they head to Iconium. But the disciples there, nevertheless, were filled with joy. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so under this third point, as we consider these different responses to the Gospel, there are really just two. Just two options. And they're radically opposed to one another. The only two responses that are available to anyone who hears this Gospel message is to accept it or to reject it, to embrace it or to cast it aside. Many of the Jews and Gentiles to whom the message went received it with joy. We can give thanks for that. But in particular, it seems that many of those who had some kind of high standing, some perhaps clout or power, something that they felt that they had to lose... They fought tooth and nail to hold on to their prestige. And so the question for us once more is this, how will we respond? How will you respond? With joy or with jealousy?
I want to close with a bit of, of summary and application here. This is a long passage, and there's a lot in it. Um, but there, there are three lessons that I want to commend to you in closing. Three particular takeaways. Things to do uh, or believe in the week ahead. First, read your Bible. Love your Bible. All of it. You know, your Bible is like three-quarters Old Testament. And so in particular, do you love the Old Testament? Do you read it? Do you understand it? The basic message of the New Testament is somewhat incomprehensible without the Old Testament. Right? The promise of a Savior, the rescue of a Son, the warning for the scoffer, and the sending of a servant, all of it's promised in the Old Testament. And it's fulfilled in Jesus and carried out further in His church. And so we have to read our Bibles. We, you can be saved, surely, just reading the New Testament. But to fully grasp or even to begin to understand and grasp the depths of what's there, we must have the whole Bible, not just parts of it. So that's the first thing. Read your Bible and read all of it. Second thing, cast yourself upon the faithful God who's promised steadfast love and holy blessing to Jesus and those who are in Him. Cast yourself upon the Lord because you, through faith in the Son, can partake of these blessings. Jesus died and rose from the dead. He didn't see corruption. Now, there is a short-term corruption that we will all experience when we die and are laid in the grave. And yet, for those who are in Jesus, that corruption isn't the final word. It isn't lasting. You too will eternally not experience corruption. You will get a new and resurrected body like Christ when He comes to put all things right. And so, are, is there, are you here today perishing as a result of a scoffing and unbelieving heart? completely unable to see what God has done, both in judgment and in mercy, and what He's doing now, despite the fact that someone is telling it to you. So I, I pray that if you are here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, that you would trust Him. Put your faith in Him. So we want to read our Bibles. We want to read our whole Bibles. We want to cast ourselves upon the faithful God. And third and finally, rejoice that God's Word continued to spread then as it does now, despite, sometimes because of, intense persecution from evildoers. And I won't belabor this point because we've seen it before and we'll see it again, but never at any point through this whole book does Luke ever want you to be too far away from this fact. The kingdom of God marches on against the attacks of the kingdom of man. You are never far from that reality at any point in the Bible. Certainly not in the book of Acts. And so, brothers and sisters, rejoice. God's kingdom is here and advancing in the world 
despite what the world has to say about it. And one day, as he gave Israel the promised land of Canaan, he will give his people the whole earth. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. This place is ours. Let's live like it and rejoice in the majesty and the might of God as his kingdom goes forth. The kingdom advances ever onward, welcoming in people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, and every nation. So that's it. Three things. Read your Bibles. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And rejoice that God's kingdom never fails.